in the beginning. Morning, Grace. I think my favorite moment of the morning is when Nathan said he's been standing in the lobby watching all the dads come in with their kids and their shirts are buttoned like this. Yes, we're missing the moms, so they're all at a women's retreat. Uh, but kudos to all of you for getting up and being here, even without somebody to push you along. I appreciate it. Hey, this morning uh, we are going to launch into a four-week series on Noah, Noah in the Ark. And I want to start by asking you a question. My guess is even if today's the first day you've ever been in church, maybe you're online just checking it out, um, most of us have some familiarity with Noah and the ark and the flood story, even if we're not necessarily churched. And so the question I want to ask you is, when you think about the story of Noah and the ark, is it a story of wrath or is it a story of rescue? Is it a story of wrath or is it a story of rescue? And some of you are already playing the game of being like, well, it's both, and that is true. But when you think about it, is it more about God's wrath or is it more about God's rescue? Grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verses 9 through the end of the chapter. There are Bibles under your seat. If you need one, uh, we encourage you, whether you're online, thank you for joining us, or here in the room, have your Bibles in front of you, or grab the Bibles under your seat, open to the passages every week. Uh, it will help you to get more and more familiar with navigating the scriptures. It will also help you to remember if you're reading along as we uh, do this. If you uh, haven't got a journal and you want one, we still have some of the journals for sale at the information counter, which is a great way to uh, keep up with the series as well. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, Bible, you can keep the one under your seat as a gift from us. If you don't own a Bible and you're online, swing by the church anytime. We would love to give you a Bible of your own. So before we read it, I just want to say something. When we uh, come to this story, just like the creation story, uh, we talked about this quite a bit, uh, the story of the flood, if we approach it from the wrong angle, we're going to miss the point. So if we get caught up in the question of how, then we they miss the better question. So my encouragement to you when we studied the, the Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and even talked about the age of the patriarchs, is when you're in your small groups, when you're sitting with one another talking about it, the better question for you to talk about is the why. Why is this story even in Scripture? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about humankind, mankind? And just as importantly, what am I supposed to do with it? What is the application for me personally as I read the story? And I will tell you, there is a lot of application for each of us as we look at the story of Noah and the Ark. The other thing I would say is you just have to let go of your need to be absolute in the way you see this story. Uh, I was reminded this morning when I was doing my final preparations on the sermon of uh, a time when uh, my son Robbie was four or five, maybe he was six, but he was playing on the floor and he was talking to his granddad and his, somehow they got talking about Noah's Ark and his grandfather, who loves Jesus, said, 
Well, it's impossible for all those animals to get on the ark. And my son, in his brilliance, just looked up and said, that's the point. It's a miracle. <laughs> and so sometimes you just got to sort of take it for what it is. Like, that's the point. Like, there is parts of this we really can't understand. There's parts of the creation story we can't understand. But that's not why it's in there. It's in there to tell us about the heart of God, the desire of God, what God how God sees mankind, and how we are to apply it. All right, so please stand as I read verses 9 through 22. I'll pause here and there just to give a little bit of commentary as I read, uh, but then we will really look at what this is saying to all of us. Starting in verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Pause right there. This is a genealogy. Genesis is a genealogy. First 10 generations from Noah, or from Adam to Noah, then the next 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. It's a long genealogy with pauses along the way to tell us about important characters or players in the genealogy that sets up the messianic line. So this is a genealogy. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Zapheth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Every time I hear that, I sing that song that I sang when I was a little kid in Sunday school. Some of you are singing it right now. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length should be 30, 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door in the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under the heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant. That's the first time we see the word covenant in the scriptures, an important word, of course. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you and to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Genesis. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your desire to speak to each one of us individually, that you are a God who sees. I thank you for your desire to speak to us corporately. Lord, I pray the same prayer that we pray every week, that we would leave this broadcast, we would leave this a service in person different than we came because the living God spoke a word over us. Whether that happens through the music or through a conversation in the lobby or through the words that, that you've given me to teach, we just pray that you would speak a word, that seeds would go out, that those seeds would land in fertile soil, that deep roots 
would form and that it would grow and produce fruit a hundredfold. Lord, I pray that we would indeed be a fruitful people, that we would receive your word. Thank you that you know us, that you care about us, as John said, that you created each one of us. You knit us together in our mother's womb. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I personally think it's fascinating uh, and a little bit odd that Noah and the Ark has become one of the most popular children's stories. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it being a children's story, but the fact is there's some pretty difficult elements that are, seem to be overlooked in the telling of a children's story. We sort of sanitized the story to make it palatable for kids. Again, there's nothing wrong with the fact that it's a children's story, but the other outcome of it being such a well-known story is it's very possible that the story has lost its awe, right? When, when a story becomes so familiar that we're no longer taken aback by it, we're no longer drawn into it, we no longer really see it with, with a sense of, of awe and inspiration, uh, we're in a dangerous place. So this can happen with all the stories of scripture. If you grew up in the church, then you run the risk that the creation story is just another story, that the story of Noah and the ark is just another story. And even more scary is the story of the gospel, that the God of the universe would actually come in the form of a human, that he would live, that he would sacrifice his life, that he would be a servant that gave up his own life, that he would die, that he would rise again on the third day, that he would be the one to reconcile us to God. That story can become so familiar that you're no longer in awe of it. It doesn't move you in the deepest places. You don't see it as anything that is different. It's just another story. And the only way to combat that Complacency. So what I always say, and you, if you've been here very long, you've heard me say this, is familiarity breeds complacency. Familiarity breeds complacency. And the only way to, to fight that tendency of complacency is to invite the Holy Spirit into the process of reading the scriptures. So when you come to church and they say, oh, we're going to teach on Psalm 23, and you say, oh, I already know that Psalm. Why do we have to teach that Psalm again? Or they're going to talk about Noah and the ark, and you're like, yes, I've been hearing about Noah and the ark since I was four years old. You got to stop and you got to say to the Holy Spirit, show me something new. Show me something for me. Allow this passage of scripture to do something in me that it's never done before. It takes great intentionality in the familiar stories to still glean new and important revelations for us. So my encouragement to you is if you know the story, even begin right now with a quick prayer in your own spirit to say, let me hear and see something that I've never heard or seen before. So, to understand the story of Noah and the ark, you have to, and I can't emphasize have to enough, understand verses 9 through 12. These verses set up the entire rest of the story. So I'm going to read for them for you again, starting in verse 9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. We already talked about that. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Zapheth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We have the genealogy telling us that this is a new, new 
chapter, if you will, in the, in the story. And then it says in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. If we're going to understand the story, there are four words that are used in these four verses that have profound meaning. And some of the profound meaning or the depth of meaning is lost on us in the Hebrew to English translation. So I'm going to give you a lot of information. I encourage you, if you're a person that wants to remember the the definitions, maybe you want to even have your phone out and take pictures of the definitions when I get to them, that's fine. But there are four words that we need to truly understand if we're going to understand the story of Noah in the ark. So it says, like his forefather Enoch, Noah walked with God, and he's described as righteous and blameless. Those are the first two of the four words. So if you're underlining things in your journal, underline righteous, underline blameless, or highlight righteous, highlight blameless, put a circle around them, whatever you do in your journal, do that. And then what is it saying? It's not saying that Noah was perfect, and it's not saying that Noah was without sin. Only Jesus lived without sin. What it is saying, though, is that he was righteous and blameless. And we're going to look at both of those words. So what does it mean that he was righteous? First and foremost, what we need to understand is that righteousness is not earned, it's bestowed. Righteousness is not earned, it is a gift given to, to, it's a gift given to Noah, it's a gift given to Abraham, which we'll see in a minute, it's a gift given to us. You don't earn it, you don't do anything to get it, it is a gift given to you through faith. So Genesis 15, a passage that we'll look at in a few weeks, says about Abraham, that he believed the Lord and that he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Counted to him, accredited to him, bestowed upon him righteousness. This is the way it was in the Old Testament. This is the way it is in the New Testament. God's people have always been saved by grace, by believing. Salvation is a gift given by faith. Righteousness is not earned, it's bestowed. Abraham believed righteousness was bestowed upon him. It wasn't because Abraham did more good things than bad things, tipped the scales of justice. It wasn't, it wasn't because Abraham did anything to earn it, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a scales of justice. It's not because he made the right sacrifices and God liked him. It's not because he prayed a really clever prayer and, and, and that saved him. It's not because he participated in any particular sacraments that saved him. Salvation is a gift. We are saved by grace through faith, lest no one can boast. All right. All of that being said, there is a profound connection between righteousness and one's behavior. Because what you truly believe, what you truly put your faith in, determines your actions and your reaction. Your behavior actually proves what you actually believe. Right? So there is a connection, a profound connection between righteousness and behavior. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying because this is important. You do not behave in such a way to become righteous. Your behavior flows out of your righteousness. Behavior doesn't make you righteous. True righteousness drives your behavior. Again, Four words that we have to understand if we're really going to get the gist of what what happened with Noah and the ark. 
First is righteousness, and here's a working definition. I know I'm going through this quick. Again, if you want to take a picture or try to scribble it down in your journal real quick, that's fine. But here's the working definition. Right. First and foremost, it means being made right with God. It is bestowed upon you. God sees you as right before him. Even though you have sin, when you believe, you are given the gift of righteousness, and God sees you as right. But then there's these actions that come out of it. Being willing, and this is important, being willing to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. If you just hold on to that one part of the definition, you're going to see how this plays out in the, in the rest of the sermon. Being willing to disadvantage yourself to the advantage of others, wholly committed to doing what is right, doing justice and loving mercy. True faith, true belief in God always drives righteous behavior. Remember when Jesus uh, had that moment when he's talking about the, 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 I think it's the, sorry, Matthew 7, right? And the, the people come to him and he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Remember this story? And they said, well, what do you mean you never knew me? And he said, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. What, what, what is he saying? He's saying, look, you may think that, that you had righteousness, but your behaviors weren't righteous, Depart from me, I never knew you. What Jesus says is, is you'll know my followers by their fruit. He says, pay attention. Is it love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? Is that, that's, what, that's how we know who, somebody who's a believer. Are they willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantages of others? Do they live a life sacrificial and servantly? Do they live like Jesus? You'll know who my followers are because they'll live like me. Not perfectly, but you'll be able to see that in the, in the people, okay? So Noah was righteous, but it also says Noah was blameless. Here's a working definition of blameless. I don't know where this came to me, who gave it to me, but uh, I would guess probably 25, 30 years ago, uh, this became the definition in my head. Every time I read the word blameless in the scripture, I hear in my head not causing other people to sin. That's just what I hear. So it's wholly committed to not causing others to stumble. It doesn't mean you're sinless, but abstaining from sin. And here's what I would ask you. Do you know that your sin can cause others to sin? Right? Your sin can become almost a way of endorsing a particular behavior. Now, parents, this is probably most true, even grandparents for you. You can say whatever you want to say. Your words are important to your kids, but really they're going to do what you do. And here's the, the crazy thing about this whole thing. Like, and it, it, I was just having this conversation with somebody this week about it. The bad transfers easy. It's the good we, we have difficult transferring. But I'm telling you, like, like all of your junk, all of your stuff, it's just neatly packaged and handed right over to your kids. You don't have to work to give them the bad. It just, it just gets transferred. You have to work to give them the good. But your kids are watching you. And the old adage, you know, do as I say, not as I do, it's, it's not going to work out for you because they're watching what you do. Your behavior could give them permission for their own behavior. You can cause them. If you have friends, if you have coworkers, and they're watching you and you're not living a life that honors God, it may give them permission. Don't cause someone else to sin. Don't cause someone else to stumble. That's the picture that we have of being blameless. 
So while we have this beautiful picture of Noah, he's blameless, he's righteous, he's blameless, he's walking with God, we have the counter to that in verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh corrupted their way on the earth. Four words, righteousness, blameless, corrupt, and violent. So if you want to circle corrupt and violent so you have all four words, that would be great. And what the writer is doing is he's creating this Stark contrast, if Noah is here, the earth and everything in the earth is all the way over here. He couldn't be painting a more vivid picture of of two very different ways of being. The word corrupt, listen to the definition, it means morally putrid, totally decayed, wasted, or destroyed. Verse 13 Look at it real quick. It says, behold, God is talking. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The word destroy in verse 13 is the same root word as the word corrupt that we see multiple times in verse 12. The good, attractive, beautiful creation, the creation that God looked over and said it is good, has been morally tainted, it's now putrid, it's totally decayed, it's wasted, it is destroyed. And God said, it is, it is so destroyed, in fact, I will destroy it. And then it says, the earth is filled with violence. And this is the word that's caught my uh, attention the most, the word that's really uh, been a little bit of a, a pinprick for me as I've studied this. The Hebrew word translated violence uh, has much broader meaning than we might first think of, of. You know, we hear violence, we think of, you know, criminal activity and raping and pillaging or whatever comes to your mind. But listen to what it says. It says, seeking personal gain through assault, physical attack, cheating, and oppression. So you can see from the definition, it's more than just physical violence. It's, it's the violent oppression of other people. One of the authors that I read this week said the violence in Genesis 12 is characterized by a blatant disregard for the existence of poverty amidst an economy of plenty. Let me read that for you again. It is a blatant disregard for the existence of poverty among an economy of plenty. This is the heart, this type of violence is the heart of racism or classism or tribalism or, or any caste system that exists. So there's a story that's gonna come in Genesis when we keep studying this in a little while, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, probably a pretty familiar story. Most of you kind of know the, the basics of Sodom and Gomorrah, but I have a question for you. What is the sin, you don't have to answer it out loud, just in your head, what is the sin that brought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? I think the vast majority of, of us would say it was sexual sin. But you might be surprised to find out it's something different. Ezekiel 16, 49. Ezekiel's a prophet. He's writing about Sodom. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. This is what they were guilty of. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. The violent oppression of others, the disregard for the needy among an economy of plenty. They had much, but they gave little. 
the scriptures are clear that we are to put everything God has given us into play for the kingdom of God. There's no prohibition about having wealth. There's no, no, there's no, uh, this is, wealth is not a bad thing. All it's saying is when God blesses you, everything he blesses you with needs to be put in play for the kingdom of God. That includes your time. It includes your talent. And yes, it includes your treasure as well. And what's hit me the hardest this week is I'm not sure I am willing to be disadvantaged at the level that God wants me to for the advantage of others. I'm not sure I'm leveraging all of the gifts God has given me. My time is probably the biggest one. I wrote this sermon early in the week and then on Wednesday, I was invited to uh, go to Arlington, Virginia and spend two days with a group of people from all over the country who are all thinking about how we can create a movement in the United States to eradicate childhood illiteracy. Uh, it was a phenomenal couple days of being with uh, uh, these people who are already doing the work in different places. I was invited because of my work with SOAR and being part of starting that whole organization 24, 25 years ago. But as we sat in the room and we strategized and we talked, I just come, kept coming back to the sermon. And here's what I would say to you. God has given us a gift in our partnership with SOAR Tutoring. We have kids that are coming to Grace in an after-school program to be tutored. We have people that are going into the schools, the DPS schools, and, and doing tutoring. We have this joint mission of teaching every willing third grader to read at or above grade level. And right before I left to go to this summit, which was amazing, uh, I saw that we have 50 children on a waiting list who can't get tutored because we don't have enough mentors to tutor them. And I just kept thinking to myself, this church, Grace Community Church, has the capacity to totally solve that problem. Amen. We have the people, resources, we have the financial, they're not even asking for financial resources. We have the people, resources to make sure that every kid that wants to learn at grade level gets a chance to read. I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm reading about and I'm writing about being willing to be disadvantaged for the advantage of others. And then I go and sit in a room and talk about it for two days. And I just, with no apologies, want to tell you, we can do this. So there is a code. And if you're willing to teach a kid to read one hour a week can change the trajectory of a kid's life. And, and here's the sad reality. I had to sign up this morning. I haven't been doing it. I've been talking to you about doing it. It's just like God just like punched me in the face. Like, really? You can't give an hour a week? You're so busy? You're, you're big pastor guy? Whoop-de-doo? Are you going to give an hour? And I signed up this morning. Meg signed up this morning. Look, we can do this. We can give an hour a week. And here's what I want you to hear. If you're already serving people, if you're already disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others, Kudos to you, keep doing that. But if you aren't, this is a great place to serve. It's a great place to, to actually do what God has given us the opportunity to do.
There's something else that just hit me when we were in Arlington. And like I said, just, people are just talking and talking about it. And, and it just struck me like, if you want to know Jesus more, serve the needy. It's all over the New Testament. Like, if you really want to experience Jesus, serve the needy. He actually says, I am the homeless, right? When you refuse to give me a cloak, when you refuse to feed me, you refuse to serve me, there is something that happens when you serve those who are in need. And trust me, these little people who need to learn to read are people in need. Look, the scriptures are clear. Those who refresh others are themselves refreshed. So there is a benefit to you to do this. If you want to experience more of Jesus, then teach a kid to read. Again, if you are already doing this in some other capacity, bless you. I bless you. I encourage you. But if you're not, this is a great place to plug in. Noah was righteous and he was blameless. The world was corrupt and it was violent. I want to kind of break this down just a little bit more because, again, it sets up the rest of the series. It's a four-week series on Noah. But here's the deal. The, the corruption and violence, it's like an aggressive cancer. And anything the cancer touches is destroyed or, to use a theological term, it is defiled. So there is a kind of a, a process, a pattern that we'll see over and over in Scripture that goes something like this. Unchecked sin sets corruption in motion. Sin is what causes the corruption. Unaddressed corruption, unconfessed sin, undealt with sin, sin that runs wild, leads to self-destruction. The person committing the sin experiences self-destruction, but the unaddressed corruption always spreads beyond the individual. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing unaddressed sin, unaddressed corruption that is now spread beyond the actual perpetrators and it is spread in a very predictable way. So the spread of corruption always goes this way in scripture. First to the individual, then to the offspring or the family, then to the animals, then to the material goods, and then to the land. Let me say that one more time. Oh, it's up there. Okay. First to the individual, then to the family, your children, and so on, then to the animals, then to the material goods, then to the land. The corruption and violence has defiled even the land. And in his mercy, God moves to save his creation. Hugh Ross says God's judgment in Genesis 6 is like the work of a skilled surgeon removing a dangerous malignancy. And the level of God's wrath, listen, the level of God's wrath or judgment is always determined by the level of defilement. Or let me say it differently. God's wrath never falls on the righteous with one exception, and that's Jesus. Now here's the deal. It doesn't mean, this does not mean that bad things will never happen to you. Jesus actually said, in this world, you're going to have some trouble. So there is a difference between trials, difficulties, heartbreak, and God's wrath. We are talking about judgment and wrath, and God's wrath never falls on the righteous, except for one exception. 
Again, back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because it's a perfect illustration of this biblical truth. Remember the story that God says, I'm gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Abraham hears about God's plan so he goes to God and he begins to negotiate with God. It's actually one of my favorite little dialogues in scripture between God and a, and a man. And, and so Abraham goes to God and he says in Genesis 18, 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What is he saying? God, your wrath doesn't fall on the righteous. Are you going to sweep away all the righteous people as well? Suppose there's 50 righteous people within the city. Are you going to sweep away the place, not spare the 50 righteous who are in it? And God says to him in verse 26, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. This is where it gets fun because Abraham then says, hmm, what about 45? God says, okay, if you can find 45 righteous people, if I find 45 righteous people, I'll spare the city. And then he becomes sort of apologetic, Abraham, and he's like, okay, what if I find 40? God says, fine, if you find 40, I'll spare it. What if I find 30? Sure, if you find 30, I'll spare it. What if I find 20? Sure, I'll spare it. And then in his last ditch, he's like, okay. I'm not trying to press things here. If you read it, that's how he's talking to God. Like, I know I'm kind of getting out of my zone here, but uh, what if I find 10 righteous people? And God says, for 10 righteous people, I will spare the city. 10 righteous people, if they'd been found in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's not a story about God being fickle. It's not a story about man being able to change God's mind. It's a story that tells us that there was not one righteous person in Sodom and Gomorrah, only Lot and his family. And the level of defilement was so deep that it affected the families and it affected the animals, and it affected the material goods, it actually affected the land. This once fertile inhabited valley is still a wasteland today. The level of God's destruction is always determined by the level of defilement. Now here's another application to this biblical principle. <clears throat> Remember the story of the Israelites taking the promised land? And if you ever read through that story, there is this reoccurring pattern of God telling the people what they're allowed to keep, right? He says sometimes, go in and destroy everything and never, ever, ever, ever inhabit that land. And then the very next time they go to a different place, he says, yeah, keep all the stuff. Oh, yeah, you can keep the gold. You can, you can plunder it, bring it back, keep the animals sometimes, kill the animals other times. And if you read it, you're like, man, make up your mind, God. Why is God doing that? Because the people of Israel were the surgeons God was using to exact judgment on the people, and the level of destruction and the level of judgment was always determined by the level of defilement. God's wrath never falls on the righteous with one exception. So the story of Noah and the ark is a story of rescue. The cancer had to be removed if the earth was to survive and if humankind was to survive. God decides to start over with a new Adam. What you're gonna see in the next couple of weeks is there's all these parallels between the creation story and the story of Noah. There's water, there's chaos, just like in the creation story. 
the animals come to Adam and the animals come to Noah, just like the creation story. You're even going to see that both stories end with sin, nakedness, and shame, and God's grace and intervention. The story of Noah and the ark is a story of precision surgery, removing everything that's killing and destroying and defiling the good that God has created. And here's what you need to know. The days of Noah are as bad as it's ever been and as bad as it ever will be till the end of time. From this point forward, there is always a remnant of believers. Now, sometimes we can't see them as well as we want to see, but from this point forward, there is always a remnant of believers, and it is the remnant of believers that stay off, if you will, the destruction of mankind. Things will never be as bad as they were in the days of Noah until the end of time. Let's look at verse 22 as a way of bringing this to a close. It says, Noah did this. If you're wondering what this is, everything that God told him to do. He did all that God commanded him. He believes God. He takes God at his word. He believes God and he does what God told him to do. What you believe about God determines your actions and your reactions. And the point of Genesis 6 is that if you believe God, you need to be a person that hears God and obeys God. Do what God is calling you to do, even when it's inconvenient, even when it means disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others, even when it means swimming completely against the current of society. Do what God is calling you to do. And what does God demand of you? He says, love me and love people. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the rules, everything is encapsulated in just those words, loving God and love your neighbor as yourself. It starts with putting your trust in Jesus. Jesus actually said, believe in God and believe in me too. Put your faith in Jesus. Righteousness is bestowed upon you and then live into and live out of that righteousness. We're gonna go to communion. If you haven't got the elements and you wanna just come down right now and grab them, there's some gluten-free elements here. If that's uh, better for you, you can come grab them while I'm wrapping these things up. But, but we'd love for you to take communion with us and, and just think about this phrase, God's wrath never falls on the righteous with one exception, and that's Jesus. The scriptures tell us that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could be the righteous of God. The value of communion, the value of the Eucharist is that it's an intentional time, which is right where I started for us to remember a story that can be so familiar that it no longer moves us. It's a time to take what we know and move it to what we need to feel and know in our hearts. Jesus said, every time you do it, remember me. And the instructions we get in the scriptures is before we take communion, we are to examine ourselves. 
And so we'll give you just a couple minutes. We'll take the elements together, but I'll just give you a minute as the band plays just to ask the question, what do I need to let go of? And what do I need to take hold of? Maybe it's a sin pattern. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's unforgiveness. What do I need to let go of? And what do I need to take hold of? And then do it. Let go and take hold. I'll come back up in just a minute and we'll take the elements together. There's nothing about taking communion in the Eucharist that saves us. Something supernatural that takes place. I believe that when you take the cup, when you take the bread, and you take those in faith, that God is doing something pretty profound. That's why the scriptures tell us that we need to take this seriously. It's not just a ritual. The scriptures tell us that on the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he knew exactly what was gonna happen to him. He knew they were gonna spit on him and beat him and pull his beard from his face and put the crown of thorns on him. The scriptures say he was actually beaten beyond recognition as a person. And he knew that was all going to happen, yet it was in that upper room that he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you take it, remember me. The scriptures say in the same way he took the cup. Elijah's cup, the cup of sacrifice, And he said, this is my blood shed for you, a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink it, remember me. But 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and the weeks ahead and the months ahead that we would, we would remember your body broken and your blood shed to reconcile us to God. That when we have faith in you, that you bestow upon us righteousness. May we be a people that live out of our righteousness. May our neighbors and our community see something different about this community of believers. It's not just talk, but we live out our faith in a powerful way, that we'd be a people that are willing to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. Amen. The scriptures say that when they had taken uh, the meal, that they sang a hymn. So part of our tradition here is we like to close communion every time with a song. So if you want to stand, John and the group is going to lead us. If you have a physical need, spiritual need, uh, this morning we heard that there may be somebody that's experienced some uh, hearing loss in their left ear. Uh, we believe that God is a God who still moves in powerful ways and wants to heal. If that is you, we'd love to pray for you down here. Um, if something struck you as I was teaching that you just know you want to talk about and get prayer for, there's some people who are trained 
would meet you down here again. Anything physical, spiritual, maybe a little bit of both. We'd love to pray for you. If you're online right now, just know that you can call the church anytime and just ask for a pastor and we will pray with you and for you. Um, I've asked the people in the back to put the QR code for tutoring back up on the screen. So if you haven't got a chance to sign up and you want to, we would love for you to do that. Um, you can also just stop at the kiosk in the back uh, that has a sore tutoring and uh, let's fill the gap so those 50 kids can be taken care of, even if it means disadvantaging ourselves a little bit for the advantage of others. An hour a week to change the trajectory of a kid's life. Thank you. Encourage you to come back next week as we look at week two of the story of Noah and the flood. Blessings. <laughs>